welcome back to the Martial Arts Mania Podcast. I'm AJ. And I'm Gavin. Hello, Gavin. How are you doing? I'm doing just fine and dandy. It is hot out. It is very hot. Yes, yes. indeed it is. And it's I just, so hot you could burn your paws. Oh, yeah, like poor little Otis, Gavin's dog. But yes, it's even hotter where I am, Central Valley, California, Fresno area to be exact. And I just wanted to throw that out there right at the beginning because I have three different forms of drink to stay hydrated because I just did my second garage workout of the week. Ooh. Yeah, so uh, that's how much I sacrificed for this podcast. I didn't have enough time to go to the actual gym and back and so forth because we had to switch our, not switch, but do an earlier recording time today. So yesterday I lifted, I always do my strength training at home. I just don't like to be bothered by the gym. And I have all years of running my own fitness, mobile fitness business. I have all my own equipment. So I, you know, I'm very old school and gritty. It's just kettlebell squats and lunges and weighted pull-ups and dips and push-ups. And, you know, so I always do my strength training at home. So yesterday, man, that was loco because it was even later in the afternoon and it was hotter. And then today I did my, what I might call my conditioning workout, which I have a variation I could do at home where it's a lot of jump rope as opposed to like using the rower or uh, at the gym and, you know, doing sprints on like the recumbent bike or something. It's just all jump rope. So I do have a version I can do when I have to do it at home. So that's what I did today in the garage. Not as hot because it was, what time was it when I started? Like one fifteen, but it's still pretty darn hot. Normally I layer up three layers when I work out. Yeah, I have I've com- seen. Yeah, compression, then like a workout shirt and then a hoodie. The past two days, I've done short sleeve compression, short short sleeve t-shirt, and that's it. And I'm drenched from head to toe. I would not recommend doing that normally for most people if you're not accustomed to training in the heat. Luckily, I am. I still don't. It's a little hot even for me. But luckily, you know, my house is insulated. The garage is hot, but not 107 degrees hot like it is outside. But that being said, that's why you may hear me drinking from my water. I have my post-workout shake. I also have some coffee. So uh, let's do this. So you're saying LA's hot, there's hotter, but where's hottest? And I am pulling from the Della Plain playbook from Action Jackson. Ooh, hot, nice. Hotter, hottest. Yeah, I like that. It, even the, the twang of your voice right now sounds like it would be the advertisement for uh, Della Plain. Della Plain. What? It did. If you're going to utter those three words together, it the voice just comes out. I like it. I like it. So what's new, Home Slice? What's uh, going on in the world of Gavinson? Well, uh, I got to be honest. I've been doing a lot of watching and a lot of laundry, a lot of watching movies, a lot of laundry, and I'm feeling in a good place. The, the hamper is empty, which is a uh, which is which says a lot. Yeah. Not often. Can one's hamper be completely empty? And it is It is completely empty. Mine never is because even though I do my laundry every week, you know, some people do it like once a month, whatever. I have to just with how uh, many workout outfits I go through. But it's never completely empty because, yeah, I just can't be because I'm, I'm usually doing a workout while I'm doing my laundry too. So yeah. technically, as soon as I'm done with the workout, there's more going in there. So it's a never-ending exactly. cycle, never-ending. Yes. So – it it, uh, it took about three or four days of discipline of like time because the other thing is with the limited number of washers, et cetera. I'm sure this is why people uh, tune into this podcast to hear about my laundry technique and tactics. Nice. Hey, you know what? If people Mission are living in apartments and they don't have their own washer and dryer, I'm sure they might like to hear your strategy. 
Well, one of these days we'll do a, a top five strategy of laundering. Yeah. See, the funny part is when I was in undergrad and that was the situation, you know, I never had a house or apartment with a washer and dryer. That's when I would do my laundry like once a month and it would just pile up or be, I would wait till I went home, you know, and I, I lived not, I mean, my family was not too far from where I went to school, far enough to where, you know, nobody was coming to surprise visit me. But I, I would sometimes plan and just wait till I'd go home and, you know, have that giant bag of mm -hmm. dirty laundry as a good college student should. <laughs> of course. Yeah. So uh, anyways, we have a great episode today. We have a lot to unpack with this particular film. But first, martial arts movie news. Now, I think the big one to bring up is not specifically martial arts movie news, but it is all movie news. And that is, since we last recorded, the Screen Actors Guild has now gone on strike. So both the WGA, the Writers Guild of America, and SAG, the Screen Actors Guild, are both on strike. First time that has happened since 1960. So pretty much all film and television production has come to a halt, a major halt. So much so that the rules in place for the members of the Screen Actors Guild are quite strict. They cannot even promote any of their films, if the, even if they're already done. So there's no promotion. There is no, obviously, filming any content. I mean, they came and post on social media about their films, if they're coming out and so forth. They can, actors, working actors cannot film any sort of auditions or go to any auditions. It is, everything is shut down. And this is huge. And, and just, just to clarify, say a film is uh, set to come out, already and they need to do like a couple of pickup shots or reshoots those are a no-go as well nope there's major motion pictures in the mid middle of filming i mean we brought up i think just last episode how mortal kombat 2 had literally just started and i wonder if what's worse if it's like in the middle of production say like deadpool 3 uh or if it had it just started like a week before i, I don't know what's the worst situation i i, I, I kind of feel for those films that are essentially, as they say, in the can, essentially ready to move towards its release date. But, you know, there's some sound issues or there's a they, they just need to shoot one more scene to make the they would ideally want to shoot one more scene, but they can't. Right. And uh, it's it's interesting because my instinct would tell me only a weekend would be easier to just pause everything. And I'm sure there's insurance type stuff that covers that. But who knows? But it also... For certain productions not being filmed in America that are maybe like international co-productions, they may be able to continue filming with certain actors. Like, for example, even in Mortal Kombat, I think some of that principal cast may not actually be, some of them may not be SAG, especially if they're not American actors. And the film, the first one filmed in Australia, this one's filming in Australia. So I'm not sure. They might be able to film some. When you've got another film like Deadpool 3, which I believe is shooting, maybe it's in Canada. I, I don't know you know, everyone's going to be SAG and it's just completely shut down. So the other factor that is kind of, I'd say, scary in this situation is the fact that nobody seems to be budging. When you hear what the upper, like high executives are saying, they're pretty much like, we're not going to budge. So we'll wait till everybody goes broke and then they're forced to come back to work. Now, the, the thing that both the Writers Guild is fighting for and the Screen Actors Guild is fighting for is residuals, you know, so before actors used to be able to make uh, 
a decent living off of their residuals from the replays, uh, reruns of their shows. Just like, you know, you always wanted your show to be able to reach syndication, whatever it is, like four seasons or five seasons. And you make every time your show plays, you get a little bit of money. If you were even just an extra in there, you may get like five or 10 bucks here or there. You do enough roles every month. That's a nice little steady stream of income that keeps you going in between projects. So that's one thing. In the era of streaming, it's been this weird gray no man's land of there's never clear cut numbers because it's all about streaming from, I guess, the individual you know consumer and their house and stuff. And it's been kind of pathetic what actors have been or have not been making uh, via residuals. It's like it's a whole new era. And that's something that wasn't addressed early enough on. So uh, there's that which is huge. And then there's also the AI factor, just like with uh, the Writers Guild of America. So, uh, for example, uh, you know, the the AI situation with the Writers Guild of America is like, oh, eventually AI will get to the point where it can write scripts and stuff. And, you know, writers want to protect their job. With actors, it's for extras that pretty much the, you know, studios want to be able to use an extra one time, take their digital likeness, and then, reuse it over and over again without the consent of the actors. And that's huge. That's like, no, you can't. It's like identity theft, in my opinion. So I I 100% agree with what they're all fighting for. And the funny part is, you know, you'll get the the negative perspective. Oh, it's just millionaires trying to become more millionaires. No, it's, it's the little guy, the little actor, you know, the writers that need to be looked out for. And the big Hollywood stars, they all seem to recognize that. You don't see a single one like, this is bull. They're all, I mean, you see a lot out there on the picket lines with their signs. I, I think, I, I think when you have such uh, a convergence of so many different people, of all, all the different walks of life within the Writers Guild and the, and the Actors Guild, uh, coming to the same conclusion, there's there's cause to listen and cause for alarm. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it'll it be interesting. We obviously, I'd say most of the films scheduled for release this year will be coming out, no problem, uh, unless it's ones like you said that need pickup shots and so forth. But this could put another huge delay just as theater going has started to get back to normal. The box office is not as strong as it once was with certain properties, but it's getting back to normal. We may hit another gap of time where there's no movies to come out just like post-COVID, right? So it's very frustrating. And we can only hope that eventually some sort of agreement comes to fruition. But it doesn't appear like, you know, even when you hear what Bob Iger of Disney had to say, you're sort of like, wow, they seem really out of touch. And I, you know, I think just, I I think there needs to be more control, more, you know, uh, laws put in place regarding AI in general. You know, I I obviously, you know, when you see the capabilities of AI, you think, wow, that's impressive, but we should not be replacing human jobs with robots and computers. (laughs) I mean, I know that may sound ignorant, but I'm a big believer in, you know, Keeping jobs here, not not in the digital internet sphere. I I I, I affirm what you're saying, brother. Hell yes, but uh, yeah. So hopefully there can be some agreements, and yeah, it's just 
Strange times we live in, my friends. Strange times. But, anywho, aside from that, uh, not oh the a, a trailer dropped for the new Jackie Chan film, not the one with John Cena, the the sequel to the Myth. So the Stanley Tong film that Jackie did, like God, ten or twelve years ago. There's now mm-hmm. a sequel coming out. Uh, it has a different name than the Myth too, and I forget what it is. I, I think it's the Myth, a legend. Oh, is that what it is? That that's what I'm seeing on uh, on uh, on my feed. Excellent, perfect. Well, yeah, and the interesting part is the Myth is another one of those ones. So if Jackie's last decade of films. It's his ones that he does with Stanley Tong that keep me intrigued and even have moments where I'm enjoying myself. Like, surprisingly enough, one of the films I've liked the most of Jackie's from the last, you know, decade or so was Kung Fu Yoga. Now, is it a great film that I'd recommend anybody? Absolutely not. But it had moments. It was like so close, like moments of the Jackie of old, right? With teaming up with Stanley Tong. And that's why, uh, and the myth was the same. Even when I saw that one, it had a lot that I enjoyed in it. But it'll be interesting to see if they can make a completely coherent slash entertaining vehicle that keeps you engaged from start to finish. I I agree. It's uh, it's to be seen. Yeah, I mean, yeah, to be seen. We'll, we'll find out. And I uh, think I, I think it's also going to be. A sign of Jackie and whether or not he's, as I said, Jackie's always, and I talked about this in the last episode, he's always been a marketing genius in terms of who he markets himself to and this and that, uh, evolving the style of films he makes. But I I think he's getting to the point now where he's going to have to evolve to that next place in terms of who he's marketing himself to, because even though his films, I think, still make money in mainland China, even just from the perspective of my mainland Chinese friends, and even when I was still living there, it's like, I think they're kind of not over him, but it's just sort of like, oh, yeah, it's Jackie. He's old. My parents like him, you know, and uh, it, he can't keep doing those same kind of films forever, right? He's going to have to start doing something different. I yeah. and I would love to see him evolve into like a Liam Neeson uh, old man action star. Something like where he's playing a foreigner in, say, England yes. or the UK. Uh, by the go. way, the myth the myth was originally, but I, uh, to digress, I, I, Pre-digress, I completely agree with you. Uh, and now to digress, the myth was uh, from 2005. So this it is almost a 20-year gap. Yeah. Holy cannoli was I off. Wow. But see, okay. So maybe but that's it why. Feel, and it feels like it was only 10 years ago because it, it it has a hint of that like high level of CGI mm-hmm. filmmaking that he's now engaged in. Precisely, and it was one of the first ones. So maybe that's why I actually enjoyed it because it was still early enough on. What two thousand five? You said two thousand five. The myth. My senior year. High Original school? title: Sanwa. Or freshman year of college. Uh, what son? Is it like number three son? Uh, I'm just seeing the oh, English okay. phonetic son. Okay, got. It. Yeah, I'm not sure what that would be. Maybe three of something, but I'm not sure what what wa would be. Uh, is it W A N G? No, W-A. Just W-A. Interesting. Huh. Okay. Well, we'll have to look that up later. But anywho, do you have some movie quotes for me, my friend? I do have a movie quote for you. All right. One movie quote. Okay. I have shown you the way of the dragon, but you have not seen it. Experience will be your teacher. Ah, the way of the tiger. Uh, I'm assuming the perfect weapon. 
Yes, very good. Okay, yeah. That's what at first it's like, uh, you know the tiger, but you do not know the dragon. Ah, yes, that's a that's a great uh sequence. Yeah, great quote. Perfect well, weapon. I- it takes part of the movie takes place in a in in a Chinatown. Oh, actually, Koreatown. So, well, it's supposed to be, but it's shot where it's shot. There's a sequence that's shot in Chinatown. Oh, okay, because most of that was a movie set. Most of that was that Warner yeah. Brothers classic set. Oh, okay, yeah, but yeah. Uh, all right, good. I like it. I like where your mind is. I like where you're going. So today, uh, the film we are talking about is, uh, I just want to make sure I get the right year here. Perfect. Okay, the 1977 Shaw Brothers classic, The Chinatown Kid, directed by Chang Che and starring the one and only Alexander Fu Shang. So, I mentioned last episode that we were going to be doing a Shaw Brothers film. This is the one I picked, and it's very interesting. So there's a lot to unpack in this movie, which we're going to get to, but I have such a love-hate relationship with this film. And when the first time, I watched it twice, so I watched it two different versions of it. There are so many different cuts and edits of this film of different lengths that it starts to get very confusing. But I watched the pretty much the primarily the two main different cuts of it, and the first one I watched was one I had never, I realized I had seen years ago, but I watch it and I'm like, oh my gosh, I didn't really enjoy that. So, but we're going to be talking about this movie. And I, I you know, I thought I, I loved it the last time I watched it. I guess I don't. So just today I rewatched the full two hour version oh, and wow. absolutely loved it. So, and I'm like, okay, that's the, where the weird love hate thing comes from is because the two different versions, it's not like a Jackie edit where they'll cut out kind of just fluff. They never cut out the action. They never cut out exciting stuff. The difference with this film is, yes, there's the different edits based off of different territories where, you know, Chinese diaspora are are throughout Southeast Asia and different rules and regulations regarding like the law. And so they have to film alternate eddings, like where say criminals get punished and so forth. There's those kind of edits involved with this film. There's the edits where, yes, they are cutting out some fluff where they think, oh, yeah, you know, Western audiences don't even care about seeing that. But the unique thing about this one is they completely cut out certain characters, plot lines, and they heavily edit the fight scenes like they're way shorter they take chunks of them out and it although it's it's a much shorter running time it doesn't feel like it runs better or it gets straight to the action not at all it it just it butchers the film and unfortunately i think that's the version you watched was the the first one i watched in preparation for this where Mm -hmm. on the arrow shosco box set it has two different versions you can watch. You can watch the full two-hour version of the film in both Cantonese or English. And the interesting part is that version they have is, I mean, it's a a beautiful copy of it, but it actually looks like you're watching a pristine 35 millimeter print. So it's not as crystal clear as the Mandarin cut, which is also on there, but is only like 90 minutes. Now that one is, you know, you're, 4k or 2k transfer it's pitch perfect beautiful but that's that highly edited one so just today i went back and rewatched the two hour one where it looks like a a beautiful 35 millimeter print and although it's longer and although it takes a little bit longer to get to the action it's a much better overall film and it makes a huge difference so it's it's funny because looking up the film allegedly there there are three 
general cuts. Right. The one you were speaking about, the 120 minutes, the international release. Then there's the 90-minute Hong Kong release. And then there's the 86-minute Celestial Remaster, which apparently includes, even though it's shorter than the 90-minute release, includes more scenes from the 120-minute release and therefore cut stuff out of the 90-minute release. The version I saw was 88 minutes in in change. Yeah. So I don't know where it falls between the two. I'm feeling like it's probably closer to the Hong Kong release. Uh, and they just round it up. Maybe it's 88 minutes in like 50 seconds and therefore gets rounded up to 90 minutes. So I, I think that's kind of, and I read that same thing. I think that's it's kind of a, a blanket statement. And I feel yeah. like there's probably going to be so many different cuts and copies and edits and versions. I'm pretty sure if I had to guess that the the 90 minute mandarin version i watched is the same as the like close to 90 minute english dub version you watched on tubi i would say so because based on what i'm seeing from the alleged celestial remaster it doesn't feel like fights were shaved it feels like story was shaved uh and it's interesting because when i started watching this film the name didn't ring a bell And I thought, oh, this is my first time watching. And as I'm watching it, I'm like, oh, I've seen this. And then all of a sudden it starts moving faster. And I'm like, I don't remember this. So I was in in sort of a a gaslight relationship with myself until I re until you texted saying, How many minutes is your version? I'm like, oh, this this makes sense because this this is but uh, I had I think I had seen the 120-minute version before, which is more like a episodic. Not even episode, just more of like a a meaty drama you would want uh, from a film that takes place that sort of follows the the ups and downs of of a protagonist that that uh, is so morally strong and then slowly shifts and starts to live in the sort of the dark side and then reemerge. But I mean, we'll we'll, we'll get into that. But it's it's. For such a film, the the ninety minute version for such a story, the ninety minute version does hit that gas pedal a couple of times. Yeah, it's it's interesting, uh, and we'll have to get into talking about the plot soon. But really, the the protagonist of the story, in comparison to like the ninety minute version or the two hour version, is very <laughs> different. I uh, have a feel. Yes, like yes, based you're right. off of motivation, based off of, uh, and a lot of that has to do with this Mandarin version, how they wanted to present the characters to the audiences, say like, I know, uh, supposedly in Malaysia, in Singapore. Because uh, the one thing you have to remember, these films were not getting released in mainland China at this time. And, you know, people be like, oh, well, I know somebody that saw it. Well, sure, I'm the bootlegs, I'm sure got smuggled in and stuff. But so they weren't even thinking about like communist censorship. It'd be more so like Taiwan, Singapore, Malaysia, etc. But the basic premise of the story is really it's uh it it's kind of so the one of the things that I wish I had more time to do research on is there's a common theme of films throughout the 80s and stuff. I mean, there's the migration dramas, the migration melodramas. Filmmakers such as Mabel Chung was very uh, famous for this. Alex Law, you know, Mabel Chung's An Autumn's Tale. Films that dealt with uh, the thematic elements of migration and the struggles of, you know, Hong Kong citizens migrating to other countries, whether it was for work purposes, so financial gain, educational gain, uh, family reasons, or so forth. And, uh, the, these films had 
common thematic elements. Uh, uh, it, I mean, it had to do with like economic shifts, globalization, uh, political uncertainty, education, employment, travel slash migration. The, the difference is with these filmmakers films, it was typically uh, women uh, characters. So, uh, you know, women in diaspora and shifting gender identities, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, there would be reverse ones, actually. Like, so, for example, uh, a classic film of this same uh, genre would be Eight Tales of Gold, which is one of the few Samuel Hung movies where there's no action. Uh, it is another Mabel Chung film, and it actually has to do with Sammo having migrated to America years before, becoming a cab driver, then going back for the first time to visit China. So these kind of films... Uh, were very prevalent. They'd be, you know, the award-winning kind. But for years now, I've been accumulating a list and doing research because although these melodramas get a lot of this credit, and rightfully so, there's actually a great deal of martial arts cinema from Hong Kong that dealt with these, say, with these same themes. Actors such as Sammo Hung, not counting Eight Tales of Gold, uh, you know, one of his more action-oriented pictures like Paper Marriage. Uh, Jet Li did it in a couple of films, actually. Uh, you know, including The Master with Jerry Trimble uh, and then Jackie Chan, even with Rumble in the Bronx, so forth. I, I won't go down that rabbit hole too much, but these these same films would tackle heavy subject matter. And this film does the same. So pretty much our film, The Chinatown Kid, we have two protagonists, but really the main one would be Tan Tong, played by Alexander Fu Shang, who first migrates from mainland China to Hong Kong illegally to live with his grandfather, make a better life for himself. He runs afoul of some local gangsters, gets framed for uh, drug dealing, and then has to escape to America. Then we've got our other protagonist. Uh, so once again, you've got the Cantonese names listed online, but uh, the English dub and the Mandarin version in the subtitles, I mean, in the Mandarin version, they have uh, certain characters with their Mandarin names. But uh, you have uh, Yang, in the Mandarin version, I believe it's Jianwen, but it's for Cantonese, Yang Qianwen, played by Sun Qian, uh, one of the famous Five Deadly Venoms. He's a student in Taiwan, so he's just gotten out of the military. He's a Taekwondo instructor, uh, working an office job, saving to go study in America. He gets accepted, so he heads over to America to study. And so the two of them end up going to the same restaurant looking for work and housing. Reluctantly, the boss lets them in, and then it's kind of the story about their different paths they end up taking. Now, the the story primarily focuses on Alexander Fouché as Tan Tong, and he does all the action stuff. We actually don't even get to see Sun Tian do any action till the end. But mm -hmm. uh, And so depending which version you watch it is the trajectory of the character and how he evolves. Now, the basic thing is there's two gangs in San Francisco Chinatown uh, fighting for control. And initially, uh, Tan Tung runs afoul of the Green Tiger Gang run by Huang Hu Ti, played by Lo Mong. And because of this, gets recruited by their rivals, the White Dragon Gang, excuse me, the White Dragon Gang, whose leader is Xiao Pai Long, played by Philip Kwok, another one of the five Venoms. And just to note, this is the first film where all five Venoms appear together, minus the snake. Uh, and so he ends up working for them. He, uh, and then, yeah, the story progresses from there. But once again, we will start talking about it because it depends on which version you watched. 
the involvement of the Tantung character, uh, as well as technically the involvement of the Yong Chen Wen character as well, because depending which dub you're watching, there's one where he just becomes a drug addict. Uh, and then there's another in the Mandarin dub, he technically hasn't tried it yet, and he's about to, and they specifically put it on there where, oh, good, he's not addicted yet. He's okay. Yes, uh, yeah. It was that's, 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 the, that's the version I saw, where it looked like he was the drug addict, where he was uh-huh. about where he had the needle in his arm, and then, you know, he takes, he takes the needle away from his friend, and then he's downstairs talking to the boss and says the exact quote that you said, he's not addicted yet, he's okay. Interesting because the English dub I watched today, I didn't. What did so? What did the uh, Young Chen Wen character say? Did he say, uh, you know, I needed it to stay awake and this and that? Okay, so yes. but see that implies that he's been doing it in the exactly Man, in the Mandarin version. He says, "I'm a, I was going to try it for the first time." No, so they right. Yes, so, you're correct. Yeah. So in my in the version that I saw, he def it, there was an implication that there's a history there, and then I thought, wow, he really just brushed the history under the under the rug for his for his friend to his boss. Oh, he's okay. He didn't he didn't yeah. try it. Well, in the Mandarin version, it's they specifically make note of, oh no no, this is my first time. Yeah, I'm about to try it, but I didn't like. So yeah, it, it's interesting. So we've laid down the basic plot, uh, but. Yeah, there's just so much to unravel here because, so for example, the whole reason why the Tong Tung character leaves Hong Kong is because he runs afoul of a local gangster played by Johnny Wong, one of our favorite antagonists. We've talked about him. Yeah, we just spoke about him a few episodes ago. Now, in the great final fight sequence. Right. And in the version you watched, what happens is they have what's supposed to be like a friendly kung fu match. Tan Tong wins, and then Johnny Wong's pissed and wants to kill him. Right? Yeah. yeah, no, that's so. In the full version, what really happens is they finish the match, they get up, the watch they were fighting for is broken. No yes. big deal because the lady boss there is like, okay, don't worry, I'm going to get you a watch, but I need you to do a job for us. And so he gets into the car with Johnny Wong, and they're all good. And that's where they trick him in trying to kidnap. Kara uh, Hoy's character now. Yeah, version, so I, I ca- saw that. That saw that scene as well. That that version. Your version has that scene on Tubi. Yes. Yeah. So they have the scene where he goes to rescue a girl. Uh huh. And then he's like, "I'm rescuing you for your cousin." And she, "That's not my cousin." Well, who's your family? I'll take you to your family. And then they're upset at him for having not brought the girl to them. Okay. Interesting. Okay, so you and then so that's why they get pissed and then they're trying to kill him and so forth. And they they frame they they can't kill him, so then they frame him by planting some a packet of drugs on him that the police almost arrest him for. He escapes, and then they realize he either stays in Hong Kong and he gets arrested, or he goes overseas without an ID. So interesting because the Mandarin version doesn't have that scene. Okay, interesting. Okay, so now let's go from there. So he ends up in Chinatown and he sees the the local gang, uh, the Green Tiger gang bullying the laundromat people and he fights against them, which then gets him in trouble at the restaurant because the restaurant is under the quote unquote protection of the Green Tiger gang. Uh, And then the boss ends up kicking him out. And then... uh, the white dragon gang hears about him. They want to recruit him. 
And so he ends up, uh, Tan Tong ends up rescuing the Philip Kwok character, the head of the White Dragon gang from Lo Mong and the uh, Green Tiger gang. And then together they take down the White, excuse me, the, the Green Tiger gang. Now, there's a sequence where they storm their martial arts school pretty much. Now, in the Mandarin version, this sequence is kind of heavily, you don't realize how much it's edited. They cut out so much of the action. They cut out uh, a lot of the gun violence throughout the whole movie, but this scene in particular too. But then they also cut out key little factors. Now, in your version, because at this point, the Johnny Wong character has now come to America because he works with the Green Tiger gang. So... Uh, Alexander Fusheng's character, Tan Tung, you know, he runs into Johnny Wong. He says, it's you, and they fight. And Tan Tung beats him and kicks him out a window. And in the Mandarin version, it shows him fall. And he's like, oh, that, like, pretty much like, oh, that hurt. And then the scene cuts. How does yours finish? The, he does go out of the window. I don't remember that, oh, that hurts. Well, no, no, I'm just saying. Oh, okay. Because, <laughs> like, because in the full version, he falls and dies. Specifically, you see him go, and then he dies. And then- you No, know, yes. So in my version, he does die. So then he's like, I've killed someone. And he's like, don't worry, I have two. It was in self-defense. Yeah, okay, no wow. one will talk. Okay, okay, so yours has that version as well. Wow. So yeah, it's- <laughs> it, it, well, it, it's, it's so funny. So like, as we're trying to talk to these through these different versions, and, and you know, uh, AJ spoke about this earlier. It, a lot of this is released based on not cutting out fluff, but based on who the market is and where this moral tale can be told and how it can be told. We talked about this before with the film Writing Wrongs, which famously, you know, the film with Cynthia Rothrock, Yun Biao, our teachers, Sensei Peter Sugarfoot Cunningham, how there's how there that film has famously has two endings. And one is everybody pays and one is some of the good guys get away depending on the the who's which market is receiving this and who what kind of moral lesson are we are we by and I say we I mean the filmmakers are the filmmakers allowed to tell so with this film being so uh kind of like a slow burn or like, you know, that, that example of, I guess it's like of the frog in the frying pan where someone, or if you put it in when it's boiling water, they're going to hop out. So this is more like the frogs in the frying pan, the water's slowly coming to a boil and the frog doesn't jump out because the frog is used to the surroundings. This is essentially a film about characters who are living within the frying pan. Uh, specifically our two, our two protagonists who are living within this frying pan that where the slow boil is happening and how they're at different points breaking and at different points showing strength and how quickly something changes where one is fighting the, the green the green dragon gang and then eventually the green tiger green tiger gang and eventually as a result of that finds himself deep within the white tigers very white deep dragon. within the white, white dragons dang it <laughs> that's okay uh so okay so let me ask you this from this point so now Tantung is part of the White Dragon Gang. They've defeated the Green Tiger Gang. Now, in the Mandarin version, from that point forward, he's not that involved with the gang. They don't show him partaking in anything. It's more like, and they don't also show all the wealth he's accumulated. They just show he's been given some new clothes. They don't show him sending money to his grandfather in Hong Kong, sending all the glasses. Uh, mm -hmm. In fact, there is a scene 
where the laundromat dad, and it's different than the one that I'm assuming now you've seen and in the full version where he just rejects sending the money. So uh, it, it's more so like the Tauntaun character has no idea what the White Dragon Gang truly does. Now, in the full international version, he's completely complicit. In fact, he joins the gang. There's like a scene where they run into a restaurant and shoot it all up, and he literally blasts and kills a dude with a shotgun. Uh, I do I do remember him blasting somebody with a shotgun. Not in the finale, though. Uh, no, no, yeah. yeah. So I, I, can't, I can't say for sure that that happens, but I can say that he does send the glasses to his grandfather. Okay. Then, then he gets the letter. Oh, but he wanted money. Okay, put money in there. Right. Okay, so it's interesting. You, you're you pretty much watching like a condensed version of the international version. So yes. in, in yours, Tauntung totally becomes a real gangster. Yeah, now, and he's walking around. And then so the, the, you know, the fight that he has with Jimmy Wong in the in the beginning is over the digital watch. And so Johnny, by the- Johnny Wong. Johnny Wong. I did, I did I do Johnny Wang? No, you did Jimmy Jimmy. Not to be confused with Jimmy Wong Yu. It's because I brought up Peter Sugarford Cunningham. Now all of a sudden it's Ah, like- Ah, there you go. There you go. So, but it's over, it's over this digital watch that he's wearing. So he, our, our, in my version, he accumulates so much wealth. He's now walking around with two versions of that watch. That's in, that's in every version, that, uh, that aspect. So, but, so I, (laughs) once again, in the Mandarin version, the reason why is they wanted him to- be a pawn, right? They didn't want their protagonist to have developed these, you know, to be complicit in all these violent, terrible crimes. Now, what happens in, I'm assuming your version, in the international version, he kind of realizes how these crimes are affecting people, specifically when his friend, uh, Yang Tianwen, played by Sun Qian, becomes a drug addict. And uh, he even, you know, the the argument that Yang Chen Wen gives back to Tan Tung is, well, how dare you yell at me uh, because you're the guys who deal the drugs, right? Because initially, Yang Chen Wen wants nothing to do with Tan Tung after he becomes this successful gangster. He's like, you're a gangster. Stay away from me. But then Tan Tung sees that Yang Chen Wen's become a drug addict. And he's like, oh, and you judge me? But then Yang Chen Wen's like, well, you're the gang that puts the drugs on the street. So in the international version, that's when he suddenly decides, you know what? Our gang isn't going to deal drugs anymore. Our gang yes. isn't going to do prostitution anymore. And then that's when the gang has to take him out, specifically under the orders of a character, uh, a Mr. Wan. Now, does your version have Mr. Wan, the older guy with the glasses and the mustache? Yes. So yes. the Mandarin cut does an awesome game of death edit style of he's completely <laughs> edited out. I love it when they do yeah, this stuff. He's completely not in the film. And wow. Uh, yeah, I wonder so, why. And, and once again, he has a whole fight scene with Alexander Fusheng at the end. So that's what I'm talking about in this Mandarin cut. The the fight scenes are edited down for violence. They're edited down because of the plot changes. It's, I mean, you see this happen a lot in martial arts cinema, everybody. And that's why this episode's going to be all over the place. Obviously, it already is. And we apologize for that. But that's what, there's so much to break down here because of all these different slight versions. And who knows, maybe someone listening to this is like, oh, yeah, it's one of my favorite movies. And they've only ever seen the Mandarin cut or they've only ever seen the version you watched on Tubi or they've only ever seen the international version. So they may and, be and like, wait, you know, oh, that makes more sense now. So the, the, the version on Tubi, it's a little unclear visually speaking. Right. It's, it's grainy. It's not a good ver- copy of it's it. Not, it's not a great copy, but that's okay. Uh, 
I almost rented the version on YouTube, but it looked like the running time was the same, so I didn't do that. But I, the YouTube version is a far visually a far more clear version. And in hindsight, maybe I should have rented it. It may have been the 86-minute version, and then I could have had a little comparison I'm, there. I'm pretty sure it's the Celestial Mandarin version that I have on the Blu-ray because that's the yeah. version I first saw years ago when I bought a bunch of these uh, Shaw Brothers DVDs in China uh, slash Hong Kong. And that's why the first time I watched it, I was like, all right, this movie's okay. But I didn't, and hence the love-hate relationship, right? So... Pretty much, this all leads to a finale, uh, no matter which version you're watching, where Tan Tung has pissed off his own gang, the White Dragon Gang, enough where they decide to take him out. Uh, in order to take him out, they try to kidnap the Sun Qian's uh, character, Yang Chen Wen, uh, and kind of hold him hostage. They have a big finale together. That's where we finally get to see Yang Chen Wen throw down, and he's a great, in real life, Taekwondo uh exponent and so he's got phenomenal kicks anybody that's seen the five deadly venoms films knows this uh but yeah also though depending which version you watch so the mandarin cut being that the mr wong character is not in there tauntung first goes to the gang kind of shoots them up and it's a very short sequence and then it cuts to the white dragon gang kidnapping uh and forcing young jen wen to go back to their headquarters now and then so they come back tauntung is there already with the shotgun they have a finale and then the police show up now mm -hmm. in your version do the police show up i don't recall the police right. showing so up then, no, no no then that makes sense so what okay happened, this yeah is the i'm version. like i'm now questioning yeah, everything no, 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 i know no, 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 no. this you're is good. red pill blue pill. yeah you're good you're good so and this is very common, just like with writing wrongs, right? There's a version where Yun Biao dies. There's a version where he gets uh, like arrested and they specifically show him in court getting sentenced to 10 years or whatever. So same thing in the Mandarin cut, everybody lives, including the head of the White Dragon Gang, uh, Xiao Pai Long, played by Philip Kwok. Tan Tong lives as well. The police show up. They do not arrest uh, Yang Qianwen, played by Sun Qian, because obviously he was kidnapped. Somehow they already know that. Uh, they arrest them. He still gives him the watch. Tan Tan gives him the watch, and then it's like, you know, be a good man, whatever, and he walks off. And this has to do with these certain territories in Asia where it had to show the criminal being punished, right? He couldn't just die. He had to be punished for his crimes. Now, in the international version, slash the version that Gavin watched, what happens was when Tan Tan initially... Uh, storms the the gang as the gang is out, or most of the gang is out, uh, going to kidnap Yang Chen Wen. He fights the remaining members and then has the fight with Mr. Wan. And Mr. Wan uses like a secret knife, a uh, belt knife, and stabs him. And then uh, Tan Tung still defeats him, but he's now got a knife in his stomach. Yes. But you notice what... Tan Tung does is he closes his jacket to cover the knife wound. And you think, why would he do that? They obviously specifically did that knowing they were shooting two different versions. <laughs> and so because in the Mandarin Cup, remember, he doesn't get stabbed. You do eventually see the blood from his gut. And when I was watching it, because that was the first version I watched this time around, I was like, huh, I don't remember him getting stabbed. And, but there's no, you know, he doesn't die. He gets arrested and he's perfectly fine. But in the international version, what happens is in that initial storming of the, the gang, he gets stabbed. He's like, oh, injured. So he covers it up. 
co- uh, you know, covers up with his jacket. Then when the gang comes back, having now just kidnapped Yang Chen Wen, and then all, uh, Tong Tong is there with the shotgun, forces them to throw away their guns, and then they end up having the big fight scene, you see that Tong Tong is injured. He's, it's starting to affect him. And eventually what happens is, he has a final confrontation with the boss of the gang, uh, Xiao Pai Lung, once again, Philip Kwok's character. And what he does is he pulls the knife out of his own stomach and stabs Philip Kwok and kills him. Then he falls to the ground all injured. That's when uh, Yang Chen Wen runs up to Tan Tang and, you know, talks to him and says, oh, you know, and in his dying in his arms, he gives him kind of a similar message, you know, like, be a good man, this and that, take the watch. But he tells him specifically, you need to get out of here before the cops get here. So then the final shot is uh, Yang Chen Wen kind of standing up and walking away. And then it's just the end. So, yeah, the version I have, it was highly implied that he did not live. I mean, you see him die right there, right? In his arms? Yes. I mean, yeah. That's that's exactly, yes. So that's the, the same ending. Once again, different from the Mandarin cut. So and I'm so what I'm curious is obviously it's cut down to like 90 minutes or 88 minutes. It's like what was shaved, and I think what was shaved is you texted me about like drugs and prostitution. Yep. While that is on the periphery of the version I have, the version that's on Tubi, they didn't like go into that realm too much. And the other the other aspect that they didn't go into on. Uh, my realm as much I feel was with uh, uh, the friend. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm not not Tan Tong, but Young Chen uh, Wen. Sun-chi, uh, yes, thank Sun-chi's you. Character? His okay. his character was not at. It felt like, oh wow, this character is was basically using drugs, and now he is the upstanding citizen at the end of the film. So there there is this gap in his character development. So I presume what 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 I missed out on uh, was maybe some character development on his part. Maybe. I mean, the only, because not really, I feel like even in the, the full two-hour version, he doesn't, it doesn't really focus on him as much. That'd be, that's why it'd be interesting for me to watch the version you watch and see if I could put together what they cut out that's different from, say, the Mandarin version where I specifically realize everything they cut out because, you know, the plot changes a decent amount. Because also in the Mandarin version, as we mentioned, the villain doesn't die. Tan Tung doesn't die. They get arrested. Then there's also a final uh, like epilogue, right? Oh, wait, no. Mm-hmm. Prologue. What would be the ending one? Epilogue. Epilogue. Yeah, I was right. Okay, good. There's like a final epilogue where he writes another letter to his father in Taiwan stating like how everything's, but it's like the letter he wrote previously in the film where he's, you know, it seems like he's kind of, uh, for lack of a better term, part of my friend's bullshitting his dad about how great things are. But that's why I can't tell. Is it supposed to be that or is he serious? Because he writes how, oh, you know, I'm doing great. I'm transferring to Harvard in the fall or whatever. Right. And so uh, is that in your version as well? I I recall that. But as we speak about these things, I don't. Well, I don't like, think that would be in your version because yours is like, closer aligned with the international version. I have to rewatch, but like, again, <laughs> what's crazy is I watched my version twice. Yeah. And the first time was like, so it's just like when I proofread, it's just like a g- glance, you know, I'm there with it. I'm breathing it in. The second one is I'm breaking it down. Uh, 
second viewing. But like I said, the first time I watched, I'm like, I remember this. I don't remember this. I remember this. I don't remember this. So I think I might have it on a VCD from years ago, which would have been possibly the 120 minute version or possibly the celestial version, the, the Mandarin version. I'm not sure. Now we're at 47 minutes into this episode and we've hardly talked about some of the, the, fights. the fights or anything like that. So let's just get straight into that. So first of all, this is a Chong Cha film. Chong Cha for listeners that don't know, it was one of the most prolific directors in Shaw Brothers. He was the one that really brought forward, as I've talked about in previous episodes, the Yang Gong aesthetic. That's the hard male aesthetic. He wanted to shift away from the female protagonists of the wuxia genre and bring back that strong masculinity. His characters quite often had this theme of brotherhood, which we have in this film, uh, heroic bloodshed, which we have in this film, depending mm-hmm. on which version you watch, uh, and strong masculine characters, which we definitely have in this film. Now, Alexander Fu Sheng was also a protege of Chang Che, both Chang Che and Liang Kar, uh, La Kar Lung, a very famous kung fu director slash actor slash hungar master. And this film, though, was the first one where La Kar Lung decided to leave kind of the Chang Che faction of Shaw Brothers and then go off and start directing his own movies. Now, Alexander Fu Sheng, even though he was a student of Lao Kar Lung, so when going into Shaw Brothers acting school, he didn't have previous martial arts experience. You'll, you'll read these rumors where, oh, he was like a judo and karate black belt and he grew up in Hawaii. Yeah, none of that's really true. Uh, and so, and you, you could tell by the way he does, even in this film, judo throws, he's not a real judo person. That being said, they're not, he's like halfway in between a Chuck Norris judo throw, which is of the highest level on film, and a Don the Dragon Wilson judo throw, which is maybe not so high. But I digress slightly. So anywho, his martial arts instructor for cinema was Lagar Lung, hence why his martial arts skills are so good. Alexander Fusheng would be up there as one of those top guys who didn't have previous martial arts experience and became a fantastic martial arts performer. In fact, he's better than a lot of the people that even came in with some quote-unquote martial arts experience before like starting with Shaw Brothers, and he outdoes them, and a lot of that has to do with his athleticism and what appears to be some natural ability. Now, he was a protege of Chang Che and a student of La Gar Lung, and when those two, La Gar Lung and Chang Che, because for the longest time, La Gar Lung was the in-house fight choreographer for Chang Che, they had a falling out, and Alexander Fusheng chose to stay with Chang Che and actually kind of burned that bridge with La Gar Lung. So this film's fight choreographer, one of the main ones, was actually Liang Ting, the famous Wing Chun instructor uh, and the former uh, Sifu or Sigong of our friend Sifu Alex at the Kung Fu Genius Podcast. So uh, he's done some episodes talking about training with him and so forth. Now, that, the thing that makes it interesting to note is, no, these fight scenes are not Wing Chun-esque. But what they do bring is an interesting element of kind of some some Muay Thai flair. And I I wonder if possibly, first of all, we're just getting a new guy on the scene, bringing some fresh ideas. As much as I love the true Hungar choreography where you have exponents of the style like Gordon Liu, Lao Gar Lung, Lao Gar Wing doing it, man, they're, they're, it's really hard to beat that when you see top-level dudes performing at their best. But sometimes when you have non- uh, Hungar stylist performing it. It doesn't come off as good. So in this film, the choreography is is an early example of a contemporary film because this film is set during modern Chinatown, uh, you know, 1977, Hong Kong and San Francisco Chinatown. So it's that contemporary film 
using traditional kung fu choreography, but not 100%. It's not like, say, uh, Legendary Weapons of China, where it's going to be all straightforward, you know, Qing Dynasty kung fu. It's that little bit of mix of traditional kung fu with that little bit of mix of modern fighting. Once again, as I mentioned, you know, uh, Yang Jianwen, that character, Sun Qian's character, and Sun Qian's character is a Taekwondo uh, teacher in Taiwan. And in the finale, he does like all kicks, which is what, as an actor, he became known for anyway. Uh, but even with Alexander Fusheng's character, Tong Tong, he's doing kind of a mix of traditional kung fu, but then also some specifically kind of Muay Thai type stuff. He, you know, he throws some knees. He also does some spinning wheel kicks, not to say that's Muay Thai. Uh, there's a great shot in one of the fight scenes where he actually does a spinning wheel kick while a guy's standing on the hood of the car. You have the full mm-hmm. dust effect and everything, an early example I, of that, whether it's I was going to say not. that because yeah. this is 1977. I was going to say it was that, and I'm glad you caught that, was that the first appearance of the dust because I were no not the first appearance of the dust but I mean but it, it was it had more so to do with what was like on the set I think as opposed to impact powder like baby powder when yeah you do yeah that intentionally because it, it, when I when I saw it I'm like wait a minute because I, I I'd seen the baby powder like take place a few years after that obviously and even during the storming of the Green Tiger Gang gym when Lo Mong and Phil Kwok are fighting I believe it's actually Lo Mong that does it where he does like a Muay Thai clinch and some knees. And the reason I bring this all up is because I wonder if that was kind of a Lung Ting influence in the fact that Lung Ting, you know, you may have your, I've actually met him once. I had lunch with him in Hong Kong randomly. Uh, I just showed up and it was like, oh, Lung Ting. Yeah, what's up? Uh, But anywho, uh, people have different opinions on him, but obviously he was uh, very knowledgeable of you know, the martial arts scene and martial arts styles in Hong Kong. And also, if I'm not mistaken, he, you know, when it comes to like the the full contact kung fu fighting competitions, I believe his school had a lot of fighters that did that. And therefore, I think they were knowledgeable of what were the modern effective fighting styles, including Muay Thai, which at this point had become already quite big in Hong Kong. So there's been, there was previous Shaw Brother films where they actually dealt with Muay Thai is a thematic element of the film and Golden Harvest even when you look at Angela Mao's film The Tournament mm-hmm. uh, or and I can't, the name escapes me of the Shaw Brothers one with David Chang and T. Long where they go to Thailand and it's all Muay Thai. I don't think it's uh, uh, I, I don't know the, the name of it off the top of my head but both of those films the Muay Thai that you see on screen unless it's like captured from an actual like fight footage that they're showing is really bad. It is nothing close to real Muay Thai. Uh, and that's why it comes off as very hokey. Uh, in this film, like the Muay Thai techniques they're doing, you're kind of like, oh, that actually looks like, uh, you know, it would be effective. Well, uh, and it's, it, it's slipped in. Yes, it's exactly. Li- that's, Perfect. It's rather than like, oh, now we're, it, you know, so often when we see martial art films, it's like we're we're going to make a film with this martial arts and this martial arts only. We're going to introduce it, and in. sometimes it's clunky. Yeah. This this is it's uh it, yeah, it's definitely slipped in. And so, by the way, that film, the one I was talking about, the Shaw Brothers one, uh, is Duel of Fists. But, Duel of Fists. Yeah. Anywho, so the the choreography in this film, when you watch the international version, or possibly, I guess, the one you watch, and you get the full-fledged fight scenes, they're hard-hitting, they're fast, they're they're a lot of fun. And it shows what a great 
star that Alexander Fu Shang was, but unfortunately could have been even more so because for listeners that don't know, and you're probably thinking, Alexander Fu Shang, who's this guy? And even me growing up, I didn't know Alexander Fu Shang at all. I had never seen any of his films until like the college years uh, and really actually probably till I got to China and maybe even seeing Legendary Weapons of China. Now, that being said, I knew who he was simply because of his tragic early death and his involvement in eight diagram pole fighters, which I, mm-hmm. but once again, I didn't see until uh, the college years possibly or even later. So anyway, Alexander Fusheng was a huge star. He was like the biggest guy at Shaw Brothers at that point in time. But tragically in like 1983, he passed away in a car accident. He had, he was notorious for, you know, reckless driving, but he actually wasn't driving at this point because his license had been revoked for reckless driving. So he was a huge star, but unfortunately kind of gets swept under the rug in terms of the famous, you know, you think of the famous Kung Fu stars of the seventies and eighties, the casual fan will never bring up Alexander Fusheng, but even like the hardcore one, even myself, like he never like pops up necessarily on my list, but he truly was a great star. And great, a lot of great. people try to credit him kind of as the creator of this youthful kind of boyish charm that Jackie would utilize, Sam would utilize. They even I would even say Andy, Andy Lau would yeah. utilize as well. There's, there's, there's a lot of uh, unforceful charisma. Right. Not trying to impose himself on the scenes, and the scenes just kind of like gravitate towards him. I mean, he he's got great on-screen charisma, even when he, even in his rags to riches, or even when he's in his rags and in his riches phase. You can't, uh, when he's in his rags phase, he he does come across as kind of edgy. You know, his 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 acting is also very layered. Right. Uh, he, he's he's edgy. He's hungry. He's moralistic. And then when he's in his riches phase, uh, I don't know. There's just completely believable is what I'm trying to say. Like so often uh, we do watch a lot of action films. We do watch a lot of martial art films. So often you won't necessarily find an actor who can or a performer, a protagonist or even antagonist who can do everything we want them to do. There's either some kind of sacrificing uh, from the martial arts capability or sacrifice on the acting capability. And I don't, everything was completely believable for me watching this. Right. And it's th- that the the boyish charm, the what they kind of coin as xiaozi, which means like, it's like a little kid type thing. But like, because it, when you think about it, it's kind of, it would be the perfect pet project for Chang Cha, as we said. He's all about that Yang Gong aesthetic, the hard masculine. So what he can do is he can take an actor like Alexander Fusheng, you know, create this character of the the young, handsome, vigorous, almost young man, but then create and evolve into this strong masculine protagonist. Even in a film like this, you see the trials and tribulations he goes through and becomes uh, this different character almost by the end. That being said, also in this film, you have the male body on display. What's his like outfit he wears throughout a good chunk of the film? It's a pretty badass uh, bell-bottom jean and sleeveless jean top with no shirt underneath, right? So once again, the male gaze uh, is another part of... uh, or I should say maybe would technically be the female gaze towards the male body, but putting the male body on display. That also being said, Sun Qian's character, uh, who uh, in real life, Sun Qian was in very good shape. He was like an athlete because he was. A, it seems to be a real Taekwondo uh, 
you know, maybe even competitor, he, his body's also put on display a lot throughout the film. Even when he's working I, in the restaurant, you know, he wears an apron and nothing underneath. And I was going to ask, does his character own a shirt? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, you see him when, when he's working like in Taiwan in his business suit and stuff, but, you know, he's teaching Taekwondo or when he's playing with those kids and it's, you know, his body's put on display a lot too. Same with Lo Mong. This is one of the first like big starring roles for Lo Mong. And there's a whole sequence where he's doing, uh, you know, a form or a kata or a, you know, taolu. Uh, and it's just a showcase for his insane physique. Because in my opinion, Lo Mong has one of the greatest martial arts movie physiques of all time. It's on, and this is a bold statement, it's it's on par with Bruce Lee's. Like Lo Mong had a phenomenal real physique, not fussels as I call them, fake muscles. Uh, but so there's a lot of that element of the male body also being displayed. So I went off a, on a little bit of a tangent, but that being said, Alexander Fu Shang was a huge, massive star. And not only that, he his wife, who's in this film as the daughter of the laundromat owner, uh, Jenny Tsang is her name in real life. She's credited just as Jenny in the credits. Uh, they were married in real life, which is huge because Jenny Tsang was a massive canto pop singer uh, throughout all of Southeast Asia at that time and had a very prolific career, you know, post uh, Alexander Fusheng's death. But their wedding was huge. They did what appears to be like variety shows together because I actually sent a clip to Gavin of uh, them singing together. And here's the crazy part. It's a duet they're singing together in English of one of my favorite, actually, disco jams that's on my uh, disco playlist. But uh, the, the song is You Don't Have to Be a Star. Uh, so you don't have to be a star, baby, <laughs> to be in my show. So now Jenny Tsang, she's a phenomenal singer, right? But the crazy part is, uh, because this is a duet, this song, uh, when you hear Alexander Fusheng sing, not only can he hold a tune, like I'm not saying he's the greatest singer of all time, but he's a good singer. He's holding a tune, performing live and in English. And mm -hmm. a lot of times when you've seen Hong Kong actors and or singers attempt to sing in English, it doesn't go over very well. Even like Jackie in his operatic operatic style, when he sings in English, it's a little rough sometimes. In fact, it's usually kind of, yeah. But I was so surprised by how good of a singer Alexander Fusheng was. But once again, they were a huge power couple. And another interesting note is they had a child together four years after he passed away. And so when yes. she had this kid, everyone's like, well, who's the dad? Apparently, they had frozen his sperm. Now, did they do that beforehand? Or was that one of those things where, like, you know, I know sometimes as someone's dying, they can do that. I, I, I don't know. I, it's, I, it's, a, it's a, that, it, The reason why I think it's so significant is it was so ahead of its time, right? Yeah, because we're talking about 82, 3. Yes, and when all, he passed away, 83. Yeah. yeah. And um, yeah, and, and their daughter is named Melody. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, you know, that you were just talking about how they right. sang in Melody. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, once again, he was a massive star. And there's he has such a large library of work that you can go back and watch. And I found a newfound appreciation for him in recent years. But in this film, in the fights, you see how athletic he is. And it's interesting. So if we're going to compare two non-martial artists that became massive martial arts stars, let's look at Brian Leung, a.k.a. Beardy, Leung Karyan, and then Alexander Fu Sheng. Brian Leung became an incredible, like, traditional kung fu performer, right? Uh, 
just and he was more under like Samo's tutelage. Now, mm-hmm. the thing with Alexander Fusheng and why this is my personal favorite film of his in terms of his martial arts performances, you see how he was a really good, almost what I would say like karate style kicker, very powerful front kick, roundhouse kick, even the like spinning wheel kick. You know, he's not doing crazy area or he doesn't have like the same flexibility that say Sun Tian as a Taekwondo practitioner has, but everything he does looks like it would work for real. He does, as I said, his knees, his kicks, uh, sweeps. And even when he's doing the traditional Kung Fu, he has a very strong style and that I think that's why there was maybe these rumors for years of, oh, well, you know, he was a karate uh, practitioner or a judo practitioner, maybe because just fans in general, we always want to believe that these people we look up to on the big screen have these prolific backgrounds and, you know, resumes when it comes to the martial arts. But sometimes man, people are just naturally good. Well, you know, that that's the thing, like, you know, we, we can we can create these stories for the, these people that we see on screen, but sometimes it's the truth that is even more inspiring. Like if somebody can close the gap that quickly and look that believable, I mean, the group fight sequences that are shot shot in Chinatown, you know, uh, where there where there are multiple multiple assailants, it's just they're so they're fun, they're beautiful, and they're powerful and believable. You've got this great combination of of what we're seeing on screen and everything we would want to see in an action in an action film in a martial arts film they they deliver it and he's able to deliver it completely believe in a believable fashion yes and it's funny obviously you guys couldn't see Gavin doing quotes when it, he said Chinatown now this film <laughs> they do pick up shots in San Francisco. So like, you know, your location shots of like, oh, it's San Francisco. Oh, it's Chinatown. Oh, look, they're, see, they're really in Chinatown. Now, in the Mandarin version, they, they'll they just interject these shots. And that's pretty much it. In the international version, there's a few extra shots of Alexander Fusheng actually. So he obviously really went mm-hmm. to San Francisco and they filmed pickup shots with him walking around yes. first before he becomes a gangster, then after he becomes a gangster, because one was where he's just in his awesome blue jean suit or blue jean outfit. And then later when he's in his gangster suit. Uh, but yeah, they they primarily was shot on sets in Hong Kong. And the funny part is even when they're doing like the car Obviously, all the cars they use, the drive, the steering wheels on the wrong side. They do tr- at least put fake California license plates. But even when they're driving outside of the movie studio sets, it's they're in Hong Kong, obviously, just from yeah. the environment, uh, the wrong side of the road. Even when they do that kind of drug deal <laughs> under the bridge, they tried to find a place. But then even one of the shots, you could see the background, those buildings, those are Hong Kong style, like skyscrapers yeah. and stuff, 100%, or apartment buildings, I should say. But, and there's different reasons why. I mean, even when I was listening to the audio commentary briefly, I didn't have time to listen to the full thing. It was, oh, apparently Chang Cho was fearful of the actual real gangs in Chinatown, which is where he got the inspiration for the story, which may be true, but well, and I, I, I'd imagine it's more of a budgetary thing. Yeah, I would say it's definitely budgetary. And then I, I think after they stopped filming or before, there, there was that famous or infamous yes. shootout yeah, as about the Dragon Restaurant. Right, exactly. And that happened apparently. And that was what Chang Chao was saying. Oh, there's going to be something bad that happens. And then that happened. I mean, yeah, you can believe what you want. But from the track record of Shaw Brothers, they really didn't shoot films. Like Even when they did that Duel of the Fist, the the Muay Thai one I mentioned before, yes, they did pickup shots in Thailand. Yes, they went to the some of the Muay Thai stadiums, but then most of it was still done. I mean, Shaw, you know, Shaw Brothers Shaw Brothers kept budgets tight. Yeah, and, and they, 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 they churned out a lot of films, kept, kept budgets tight. But I will say, 
watching Chinatown Kid, you know, there's a lot, there are a lot of reasons to watch it. I can understand a love-hate relationship with all the different cuts, but the pickup shots are kind of special. Seeing China, I love seeing foreign locales through director's eyes. So I guess, I mean, San Francisco isn't foreign to us, being that we're recording here in America, we are, we are Americans, but, uh, to see it shot through the eyes of of a foreign director and someone as accomplished as a chuncha it's really it's really kind of fun it's nice to see what they find interesting yeah and once again at the beginning of the episode i talked about these migration dramas uh you know the melodramas from hong kong mabel chung this film deals with a lot of these same things you know the migration of both a taiwanese citizen and a hong kong Illegal Hong Kong immigrant coming over to America, one legally through a student visa, one illegally dealing with poverty issues, wealth, the pressures of trying to perform, you know, the the evils that you may run into when you don't live a, a life that's lawful, right? And mm-hmm. so there's a, there's a lot of deep issues that are tackled. One real quick thing I want to mention, though, is in the Mandarin cut, during uh, the one kind of, not car chase sequence, but when he's gets screwed over in that drug deal, first of all, in the Mandarin version, he doesn't know it's drugs in the car, because remember, his character doesn't know about the drugs, and they even have a shot of his face like, what? Which in the international version, he knows what's going down. He just has to escape the police after he's been set up. But that's the thing. They really made it so his character had no idea of what the gang truly did. But anyway, what happens is when he's chasing down the other guy in the car, they actually interject shots of, uh, I don't think it's the Golden Gate Bridge. It might be the Bay uh, uh, the Bay Bridge. Mm-hmm. And then they cut back to the cars in Hong Kong. Then they just show a shot of the bridge. Then they cut back. It like makes no sense, but they're trying to establish that. Yeah, see, it's really America. But it, <laughs> yeah. it, it comes off as pretty hokey. But yeah, yeah th- this film is one I highly recommend watching. Obviously, if you can, watch the... If you don't have the Shawscope Volume 1 box set, you should pick it up. It's incredible, as is number two. But that's the one that has this beautiful kind of 35-millimeter print version of the full two-hour international version. And when you watch that one, it's it, – yes, as Gavin said, it's kind of a slow burn at first. But then once it picks up, it really gets going. And the fight scenes are fantastic, hard-hitting. They have some cool, innovative techniques that were different than a lot of the Shaw Brothers films at that time or even Golden Harvest. You have some great performers. As I mentioned, this is the first time that all five of the Deadly Venoms work together, minus the snake. Uh, but, for example, a couple of them just have, like, stunt player roles, like Lu Feng. You see him pop up in there as a random gang member. But, you know, you you have Lo Meng. You have Philip Kwok as prevalent character. Sun Tian, obviously. Uh you do get some real locale in Chinatown, but otherwise the sets they built, you know, they they do their their job. Great performances from everyone. A lot of action in the full version. And Alexander Fu Shang is, you know, at his best in this. And it is always cool when you get to see contemporary reaction from this era because predominantly the Shaw Brothers films of this time were focusing on, you know, Qing Dynasty, this and that. They did a bunch of Shaolin Temple movies. Alexander Fu Shang made a bunch of those. Uh, so typically Chang Che's films weren't, have uh, weren't they didn't have a contemporary setting. So this is also unique in his library of work for that same reason. So a, a lot to uncover in this film a lot to try to analyze. This is one of our longest episodes we've done in a while, uh, and I apologize for that, but it's just we uh, we spent like 30 minutes trying to figure out the different 
cuts and edits between the different versions, which is significant because, as I said, somebody may have watched this movie one time. Maybe they saw the Mandarin cut and they're like, I didn't really like it. The fight scene seemed kind of weird because, yeah, they're edited to cut down on violence. Uh, and, you know, the character of Tan Tung, he seems kind of... Uh, Silly, not knowing what's going on. Well, yeah, because in that version, they try to make it where he's completely just a pawn of the gang. So, yeah, it, it, you've got to try to watch the full two-hour international version. Yes, it's long for a kung fu film, but I think that's where you're going to get the true epic, entertaining version. Once again, as I said, the love-hate relationship I have, I love that version. I can watch it just now because when I was watching it earlier, I was more so watching it for the audio commentary. But getting into it, I realized right out the gate, I'm like, this is the version I love. And so I actually turned off the audio commentary just to watch the full movie again. So definitely recommend this one. It is a unique film. It is a classic amongst Shaw Brothers. In fact, the biography that was written recently about Alexander Fusheng, I think it's called The Chinatown Kid. So this is kind of one of his most famous roles. I remember first seeing the trailer for this film as a kid on my uh, Bruce Lee and Kung Fu Mania VHS tape. I always thought it looked cool. And yeah, highly suggest you check it out. It's unique for many reasons, as we've mentioned. It has great fight scenes throughout, hard hitting, great performances. And yes, it's kind of a slow burn at first, but once it gets going, you will be entertained. Highly entertained. Any final notes? I think you, I think I'm really pleased you picked this film. It's one that, again, I had seen a version of right. years ago, not the version I watched uh, the last two days. And uh, I'm glad you picked it because it, it's enjoyable and it's, it was slight, I don't want to say it's outside of my wheelhouse, but access to maybe the proper versions was outside of my wheelhouse or outside of my, uh, beyond my radar. So I'm glad you put it back on my radar. Excellent. Yeah. So uh, language corner real quick. Can you guess what word I'm going to be teaching us today? Brotherhood. No. Okay. Chinatown. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So and then once again, it's like, I, and I try, anytime I'm doing language corner, I do not teach something that I didn't already know. Like I may look up something uh, to clarify like tones and stuff. Uh, or even like last week's when it came to Fearless Hyena, the the full title, uh, I had to look up the the final word because I wasn't as familiar. But anytime I do Language Corner, it's got to be a word I already know. And so the reason I knew Chinatown is because, once again, I loved going to Chinatown. I, I first went to San Francisco Chinatown when I was uh, going into my freshman year of high school. So I just finished eighth grade, and that was my first trip. And I'd go back about once a year, at least twice a year. Well, and once a year in school, we would take a school trip to San Francisco to usually go see a, a theater show. Uh, and I would always, whoever was hanging out with me that day knew, okay, we're with AJ, we got to go to Chinatown. So... I, I love Chinatown. Even when I go now, it gives me my fix of, you know, not being able to go to Hong Kong. So I early on asked Rita Lauscher, my teacher, like how to say Chinatown. And it is interesting. So Chinatown is Tang Ren Jie. Oh, wait, wait. Say again. Tang Ren Jie. Tang Ren Jie. Yeah, perfect. So... And she broke it down for me. So Tang is the same as like Tang Dynasty, right? And so Ren is people and Jie is like street. Uh, another word for street, not like Lu, like Ma Lu, which is, you know, the common word. It's like a street or market or area. So pretty much what it is, it's like from the Tang Dynasty, like when you had, you know, 
Chinese leaving China and going to other places, or whatever. So it'd be pretty much like, you know, just like the tongs. It's, it's, it's a similar use of the word, but it's like the, the, the tong era, like people, uh, tong era people street. So it's like, it's like saying the, 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 the same Chinese people street type area. Yep. There you go. Well, thank you very much. You are welcome. So, uh, yeah, that, that's the okay. episode. Uh, thanks you, thank you all for listening for this long, long episode. We will be back next week talking about who knows what. We haven't decided yet. But, yeah, go check out The Chinatown Kid. Okay. Okay. I was, I was waiting, I was waiting, for, for, I was waiting for the music to start no, at the end no, of the no. podcast. Yeah, no, there you yeah. go. All right. Uh, we'll see you next week. <laughs> Sounds good. I'll right. say, take care. Peace.